Shalom, shalom. You're listening to Live Internet Studies. This is episode number 194. My name is Ariel ben Lyman Hanavi. Let's open with a word of prayer. Avinu Makino, our Father, our King, we find ourselves at the time of this recording right in the middle of your fall festivals, your special times that you have set apart on your calendar for us to meet you. It's so important, Lord, that we as your followers, both Jew and Gentiles and Messiah, it's so important that we actualize the truth that these are your times of refreshing. They are, ti- they are your holy times. They are, they are your holy days. They're not uh, invented by the rabbis. They're not invented by the church fathers. They're not created by humans. Um, you designated these times. You gave them to Israel to steward them, to mark them out on our own calendars. In other words, we have to line our calendar up with your heavenly calendar. And in so doing, we believe that we are in a position where we can receive whatever you want to um, give to us. So, Lord, we're in a position where we're saying, open our hearts, open our minds, uh, open our ears to hear what the Spirit is saying. Um, the themes surrounding these uh, festivals, as has been properly taught by many, many um, Bible teachers, uh, myself included, is that these are dress rehearsals of messianic redemption. These festivals uh, highlight and earmark the um, uh, uh, the 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 uh, fullness of what Yeshua has done for us uh, as certain um, highlights in his life. You know, he filled it. He fulfilled the Passover lamb expectation. The the um, the unleavened bread. He has that true bread that came down from heaven. Um, he is the first fruits risen from the dead. Right. Uh, he poured out his spirit at at uh, Shavuot at Pentecost. And now, as we enter into these fall feasts, what I just described a moment ago was the spring feast. And now, as we enter into these fall feasts, we see, again, the opportunity to understand the workings of our Messiah, Yeshua, as he is the one who's calling us. He is the voice of the trumpet calling us to awaken, to, to awaken from our spiritual slumber, to, to wake up and be uh, get prepared because the king is coming. He himself is that king, and yet um, his voice is that trumpet as well. Um, the, the spiritual themes, and now we're turning to Yom Kippur uh, this week, or by the time this recording goes out, it'll already be passed. Um, he is that Yom Kippur sacrifice, just like he uh, uh, is the perfect uh, Passover sacrifice. He's the perfect Yom Kippur goat as well. All of the sins of the world were laid on him. And then um, he's our atonement, our final atonement as our high priest, right? We read the entire book of Hebrews. And now uh, that final feast of um, of tabernacles, he is that one that tabernacled with us. He is God with us, God among us. He he pitched his tent with us, John um, 1.14 uh, tells us. Um, he dwelt among us in this tent, this human tent, the word made flesh, um, God with us, Emmanuel, and... Um, uh, and now this this new birth takes place this, this this eighth day, Lord. It's so important that we um, take time to uh, uh, recognize these festivals and to celebrate them if at all possible. So thank you for this time. Um, thank you for uh, opening our eyes and giving us um, uh, the um, um, just the desire to want to walk in your ways and uh, be pleasing to you. Because we know that if we do it your way, then um, we have your blessing on it. So uh, continue to protect us and raise us up and strengthen us. And we'll be careful to give you the praise and the glory. B'shem Yeshua, Amen. All right. Thank you, everyone, for joining me week after week during these live studies. Um, thank you for allowing me to, to go really, really long on my prayer there. 
Uh, those of you who are watching this segment one of these videos, um, five parts to this uh, first 30-minute segment, you didn't catch the prayer. You have to wait for the longer, uh, full hour-long video at the end of the week to catch that. But we're in our Matthew 9 uh, study once again. This is a study on, it's entitled Judaism. Uh, are Judaism and Christianity incompatible with one another? Or the short working title is Judaism v. Christianity, or as I kind of jokingly said two weeks ago, uh, JVC. And so we're talking about this passage that we find in the book of Matthew and in Mark and in Luke about Jesus being questioned about why he and his disciples are fasting. And then he, he answers the question as to why he's not, why he's fat, why he's not fasting. I'm sorry. Why his disciples aren't fasting, why they're not. And then he goes on to supply these parables uh, about a uh, patching a cloth and um, pouring new wine into old wineskins. And he uses that opportunity to obviously teach an important lesson to everyone who was listening. But what we've learned is that there is no explanation in either one of the uh, records that is left for us. So what Christianity has done from time all the way back, so from when since Christianity has been a people group, <clears throat> right, historical Gentilist version of Christianity, is that we've supplied our own allegorical meanings behind the passages. So um, I'm not going to read the passage this time. I've got it sitting on your screen, but for time's sake, let's just jump right into my own commentary. But we're working from Matthew 9, 14 through 17, or uh, it shows up in Mark uh, 2, 18 through 22, and then it also shows up in Luke 5, 33 through the end of the chapter, which is 39. All right. So let's look at my own commentary. What we've been um, looking at is a commentary that's available on my website at tatesaytorah.com. And uh, we've looked at historic Christian perspectives. We've learned that the basic kind of default Christian allegory of the explanation or interpretation is that Jesus is explaining that his own theology and teachings and ideology are so radically new and different and incompatible with the existing worldview of Judaism and, and their commandment keeping and focus on keeping the law of Moses and things like that. Yeshua's way of walking in God's ways or being faithful to God is so radically different because it's faith-based instead of works-based, supposedly. It's so radically different that it, 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 it um, necessitated a change or a replacement. So in basic Christian forms of interpretation or allegory of this passage, almost to a, a T, what you'll find is something that is akin to replacement theology, where the old is out and the new is in. And in this statement of old and new, the old is Judaism and the newest Christianity with, with everything that it entails. Law of Moses is out, law of Christ is in, um, old covenants out, new covenants in, old testaments out, new testaments in. Um, uh, Jew Jews are out, Christians are in, Gentile Christians are in. Um, you know, the synagogue is out, the church is in. Whatever you want to fill in blanks, it all kind of mounts to the same form of replacement theology, which I soundly reject. And so we've looked at different authors, uh, different Christian perspectives. We looked at a messianic perspective, and now we're turning our in our final thoughts to Tim Haig. Um, the, one of my favorite uh, messianic Jewish authors, and here's what we here's what we left off two weeks ago before the break. So let me ju just follow along with me on the screen, and I'll read it. Uh, this is my own thoughts. Having sufficiently uh, sufficiently explained a theologically more sound way to understand the parable of the patch, Tim Haig 
drives his point home with this summary of the wine parable and the overall context of Yeshua's teaching on the subject. We left off kind of right in the middle of that last week, so I just picked it up again where we left off. Started over. Here's what Tim Hague has to say. Oops, that again. Okay, this is Tim Hague. The contrast is not between old wine as that which is unwanted and new wine as that which is now desirable. Um, remember, that's basically the, the, the kind of historic perspective that we gain when we look at the parable. I also reminded you in these studies that there's a kind of a common sense aspect built into Yeshua's uh, parables as well. The idea that if you're patching an old garment, I'm sorry, let me back up. The idea if you're having a wedding, that it is desirable to feast rather than fast, that it's desirable to rejoice rather than to mourn. It's kind of common sense, right? It's kind of morbid if you think about it. Why would you hold a wedding and then have everybody mourning and fasting, right? Wearing, can you imagine showing up at a wedding where everyone's wearing sackcloth and ashes and, you know, um, and going, woe is me, you know, the bride and the groom are getting married. Oh, whoa, oy vey. Right? That doesn't, the, the themes are just, they don't, they're displaced, right? They're, they, they don't work. So I almost think that Yeshua kind of looked at the, the, those who questioned him as to why he was fasting, why he wasn't fasting. He almost looked at them and said, duh, why would you fast at a wedding? And of course, that was the opportunity for Yeshua to explain to them that I am the long-awaited bride groom that God the Father promised to bring to the bride Israel, right, in this divine marriage that's taking place. Um, so that's common sense. So when Yeshua launches into his parables about putting a patch on an un, a piece an unshrunk path on a piece of, a piece of old cloth what i mean a new patch on an old cloth and the and the uh challenges that that uh, crop up with not shrinking one of them first right that's common sense common sense uh, at least for his day <laughs> maybe not so today much today because we've lost a lot of common sense in our day uh likewise with his parable about the um introducing uh new wine into old wine skins right common sense in that day would suggest that you have to condition the wineskins first or at least uh, bring in uh, something else. So there's a lot of common sense built into the uh, parable that that is enough that we don't have to kind of fall back into the allegory of the replacement theology that's taught by traditional Christian circles. It seems like I'm picking on traditional Christianity at this point, but it's for good measure. Most rabbinic Jews that I have ever encountered or ever read about or ever studied or, or, or interacted with on any level are going to repudiate the idea of replacement theology and supersessionism and many of the uh, tenets of um, dispensationalism. They're, they don't like to be on the receiving end of, hey, guess what out? Guess what? You guys are out. We're in. Right? God's replacing us. You guys had your chance. Now you're out. Right? Get lost. So that's that is that message isn't received too well in Jewish circles, and it shouldn't be because it's not biblical. So let's keep going with Tim Haig. Uh, he says in both cases the wine is essentially the same, and that is it begins with grape juice, right, new wine, and becomes wine through fermentation. So he's explaining the details, and now he's um, supplying us with a better way to understand this passage. In fact, this section of my commentary, if you can see the little blue strip across the top, if you're watching this video, is entitled, A Better Way to Understand This Passage. Tim continues, What is more, the old wine is preferable 
according to Luke. And you'll only find that feature in Luke uh, chapter 5, verse 39, I believe, the very end of the parable, where it's Luke that, that reminds us that Yeshua says, no one after, I'm paraphrasing, no one after drinking new wine desires new wine, for he says to himself, the old is good or uh, better, depending on which translation you're using, different Greek word that shows up. And the point I made is that <clears throat> if indeed the historic Christian allegorical um, interpretation of replacement where Jesus is bringing something new, i.e. Christianity, and it's displacing the old, which is Judaism, um, if that's indeed accurate according to historic Christianity, then why would Jesus remind the readers in Luke, right, uh, that the old is more prefer the old is preferable, it's better, it's more desirable. If according to the allegorical application that Christianity supplied, <clears throat> the old equates to Judaism or the law of Moses, right? Can you imagine Yeshua saying, No one after experiencing the new covenant desires the new covenant because he says to himself, the old covenant is better. Law of Moses is better. Judaism is better, right? That kind of flies in the face of the historic Christian example that they've been supplying for so many years, right? So we need to rethink this um, uh, parable. According to Heg, there's another way that I purposely have not been discussing on how to um, uh, interpret this passage. So now we're ready to look at it. So uh, Heg says, rather, the contrast that we see in these passages relates to the ability of this skin to contain the wine. He continues, when connected to the whole enterprise of making disciples. Now pause, let me stop. Suddenly Tim's re reminding us that there's this idea of making disciples. This is a detail that's notably absent from many Christian interpretations. Not all. Not all. So I'm not indicting everyone. I'm not throwing the entirety of Christianity under the bus. So don't think that's what I'm doing. What I'm saying is that we have a majority opinion and perspective, which is the replacement theology allegory. And then we have a kind of a some minor interpretations that are floating around. And this is one of the minority opinions, along with the idea of the common sense factor. That's also a minority explanation. But listen to what Tim Tegg has to say about this. And I think there's some weight to it. And so um, um, just consider this. I'm not saying... Uh, you have to upend your entire theology because of what I'm uh, teaching right now. I do want to challenge you that if you're holding to a perspective that is akin to replacement theology or um, teaches that Judaism's out and Christianity's in, you probably want to abandon that sooner or later because it is entirely unbiblical. Um, again, there are aspects of replacement theology that are based in truth, but uh, you know, when we're talking about old man versus new man, the old man is definitely replaced by the new man. Uh, that aspect, when we talk about if you're saying, well, God replaces the old man with the new man, and that's part of replacement theology, if that's what you're saying, well, then I have to agree with that theology. But by and large, the, the overall picture of replacement theology doesn't really focus on the old man, new man experience, right? The born again salvation experience. Most of the replacement theology does discussions and conversations focus on we're no longer under the law. We Gentile Christians no longer have to keep the Torah anymore. That's the primary main um, point of discussion that at least I've encountered whenever I'm reading about replacement theology. The church has replaced Israel as the people of God. The new covenant has replaced the old covenant as the way in which to identify with God, etc., etc. That's the primary um, discussions that I have usually encountered. But let's continue. So Timaeus says, um, when connected to the whole enterprise of disciple-making, so listen up, because this might be new to you. 
The contrast when we're talking about making disciples is between someone who has already become engulfed in the traditions of the elders as having absolute authority versus or contrasting someone who was essentially uneducated. So we're talking about going back to Jesus' day. We have Jesus going around and he's calling disciples unto himself. And if you remember, even from the casual reading of the, of the Gospels, Yeshua didn't head straight to the academies of his day and select disciples from the learned, right? I mean, Paul is kind of a notable exception. Paul was one of those disciples of Yeshua that um, had a formal education, if we want to call it that, right? He was highly trained, sat at the feet of Gamaliel or Gamliel, if you want to say the Hebrew pronunciation. But for the most part, if you're talking about the 12, the original 12, mostly what Yeshua was looking for was your very average, uh, simple um, people to follow after him. And why? Why would he do that? Let's read Tim Haig. Let's let Tim Haig explain it in his way. Normally, Tim says, a sage like Yeshua would look for someone who had already excelled in his Torah studies to become one of his disciples. We kind of do that today. If you're going to apply to an Ivy League college, right, Yale, Harvard, or something like that, ideally, the, the application preferably is going to show that you came from a school where you had very high grades, right? You kept a high grade point average. You, were, you did good in your studies. I mean, they're not just going to let anyone and everyone into their schools. So it's kind of the same principle going on. You want someone who's already got high marks uh, in their education. So Tim Hague reminds us, Yeshua, however, sought just the opposite. He wanted new wineskins, right? We're looking at these, we're looking at the parable through the lens of um, a different perspective. In other words, treating it like it's Yeshua replacing Judaism with Christianity, right? The old is out, the new is in. It's incompatible with my worldview, right? You want to approach God. You can't keep the commandments anymore. That's the old way of approaching God. You need to keep the God by, by faith, right? It's not by works religion anymore. It's not by keeping the commandments. It's not by obedience anymore. It's all about faith and loving your neighbor and loving God and being filled with spirit and blah, blah, blah. And you can hear the kind of the, the sarcasm in my voice as I'm trying to imitate traditional Christian um, uh, tropes on this uh, idea, on this conversation. And it's because I'm so amazed at how easily we're ready to throw Judaism and the law of Moses and the Old Testament under the bus as Christians. All right, but Tim Hag says, no, that's not really the best way to look at the passage either, right? That's incompatible with um, uh, a reading of the Torah and the Tanakh. Rather, Yeshua wanted these new wineskins, as he says, unstretched by the traditions of the elders. We let that sink in because I know this is a little new to many of you. You're like, what? I never thought about reading the passage that way. And in all fairness, Yeshua doesn't explain it this way. Just like he doesn't explain it the allegorical way that uh, amounts to uh, replacement theology. In all fairness, when you go back and read Matthew, Mark, and Luke, he doesn't explain it at all. So what we have to do is we have to ascertain what the master meant by his parables from his overall lifestyle and his overall message that is uh, gleaned as we read the rest of um, the Gospels. That's what we do. And what we find is that the idea that Yeshua came to replace uh, Judaism with Christianity is incompatible not only with the Tanakh, right? the promises laid out by the prophets that God would one day uh, fill Israel with his spirit and cause them to walk into his ways, right? 
So replacement theology is is, is incompatible with the uh, prophecies, but replacement theology is also incompatible with Yeshua's very own message that is um, uh, interpreted as we look at the way the Master interacted with people, uh, as he taught, as he walked, as he healed people, as he challenged people with his message. It was radical, yes, but it was radical because of the transformative nature of the old man to the new man. That's the radical aspect, right? Get, you know, wake up, sleep. Oh, you sleeping um, followers of God. Um, you know, the king is here. Um, you know, you need to um, come out of your sin, re repent. Uh, you know, the king is it's here. Um, you need to be born again. Things like that. Those types of radical aspects to his message were are applicable, and that's accurate. But to plug in this whole replacement allegory, replacement theology allegory, that's just wrong from the beginning. So what Tim's doing is he's supplying an interpretation that isn't supplied by Jesus, but it is consistent and compatible with the overall message of what we know historically to be true when we go back and do some historical research about um, what uh, teachers would do during this that day. Let's continue. Tim says, Jesus wanted new wineskins unstretched by the traditions of the elders. Or, he says, to put it another way, the manner in which Yeshua intended to fulfill the Torah, like he says in Matthew 5.17, is clearly not by abolishing it, but by unwrapping it from the stranglehold of traditions in which it had been encased, right? So we're talking about a better way to understand how Yeshua's parables might apply. So Yeshua didn't come to do away with the law, Rather, he came to set it free as if it needed to be liberated from the traditions of the rabbis and all of the, the um, um, man-made traditions that were choking out the choking the life out of it. Uh, you sh uh, Tim Hague says, uh, um, unwrapping it from the stranglehold of traditions that had been encased. Traditions, he says, Tim Hague says, that had effectively eclipsed mercy as the motivating factor in halakhic decisions. So... Often, Yeshua would challenge people, you know, you've got a donkey that's in the ditch, uh, and according to the law of Moses, you're supposed to set that donkey free, even if it's the Sabbath day. But by Yeshua's day, the preference for keeping the Sabbath had so trumped anything else that when you had someone who was uh, afflicted on the Sabbath day, right, people who, who encountered Yeshua in the synagogues and were sick, and Yeshua was healing them on the Sabbath, he would then have to remind them that, look, even God, our Father, commanded us to set that donkey free on a Sabbath day. How much more, how more important are people than donkeys, right? Shouldn't we liberate them, set them free from the ailments? I mean, you guys are looking at me, I'm Yeshua talking. You guys are looking at me like I'm like I'm blasphemous for healing someone on the Sabbath day. So this is these are just examples where Yeshua was reminding them, look. You guys, in your effort to keep the laws of God, have now um, conflated all of your traditions with God's commandments in your halakha and your minutia, and now people can't even see mercy anymore. It's an entirely a, a legalistic enterprise. You've, you've hijacked the words of God and turned them into your own um, program, and it's it's all bad, right? It's, it's a mess. And so Jesus came to kind of break through and cut through all those calloused 
opinions about the Torah and to bring the true and pure mercy and grace that's actually built into the text, bring that back to the forefront and show the people that um, the Torah is um, a merciful document. It, it's through and through. It has grace and mercy. And uh, I can show you how to walk it out. Filled by the Spirit, Yeshua basically is saying. So he's seeking his disciples. And who's he going to pick? Is he going to pick people who have already kind of been sort of Sort of, and I'm filling in these words. Okay, these are not what Tim Hayes says. People who've already been so sort of kind of brainwashed by the religious authorities of their day, or is Yeshua going to look for people who are basically newbies? Right. So let's keep listening to Tim Hague. Um, Let's go for another five minutes or so, and then we'll call it quits. Tim says, rather than um, uh, going uh, the way uh, that the rabbis would normally do it, Yeshua did, did something slightly different. Rather, Tim Hague says. He, Yeshua, desired to teach his disciples the Torah as God intended it to be understood and obeyed in obedience that would be governed by mercy towards one's fellow man as befitting those who had themselves experienced the mercy of God, right? Let me read that last sentence again. As befitting those who themselves had experienced the mercy of God. Make sense? You've got to view Torah through the lens of how should I treat my neighbor? Is that the way I want to be treated? Right? It's the golden rule. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Paraphrased, of course. And this is in accord with the two greatest commandments that Yeshua reminded us about, right? Love God, love your neighbor. So when we're when we're seeking to keep Torah, Yeshua's challenge to the religious leaders so often was you guys are asking them to do um impossible things. And you yourselves are not even willing to lift your finger to help them out when they're struggling, right? You help them out with their load, right? Shame on you. That's hip hypocrisy. Tim concludes, he says, to do this required having disciples, right? To, to go the opposite way that disciples were normally chosen in that day. Um, to do this required having disciples that were unencumbered by rabbinic tradition and were therefore uh, new wineskins, quote unquote, able to receive this reclamation of Torah as Yeshua would teach it both in word and in deed. And so, in case you didn't catch it, the application or um, translation that uh, Tim Haig is supplying, again, this is extra because Jesus didn't give us all these, but it is entirely um, uh, compatible uh, and agrees in theology with the historical way that uh uh, Jews would, uh, Jewish leaders would pick disciples, and it's in accordance with the message that Yeshua was bringing and the overall thrust of returning people back to the pure understanding of God's words rather than simply going on along with the legalistic misunderstandings that had crept up in Yeshua's day. So, in conclusion to this section, what I'm saying is that um, uh, this interpretation by Tim Haig fits better than the uh, allegorical historical interpretation of Jesus has come to do away with the old traditional Jewish way of approaching God and introduce this brand new way of keeping uh, uh, our relationship with God by just loving everybody, smoothing everything out, uh, washing everything over with the New Covenant, New Testament theology, uh, faith and love and, and all of that um, that tends to kind of be overemphasized. Uh, it's Tim Hague's explanation is a little bit more compatible, a little bit more um, um, acceptable with the overall thrust of 
not only what Yeshua taught, but what Paul would later on go on to teach in his own message as well, which is an entirely pro-Torah perspective, contrary to what um, historic Christianity might believe Paul is teaching. But that's going to do it for tonight's, uh, this first segment on um, in our live studies, uh, are Judaism and Christianity incompatible with one another? We'll pick this up again, not next week, very important listen we're not meeting next week because we're still right in the middle of the fall feasts uh by the time you're listening to this study either yom kippur is right around the corner or it just happened this week and so we're now we're turning right into um the final uh, festivals of the fall feasts uh sukkot feast of tabernacles so no meeting next week but we will meet the week after that so um we'll pick this up again in two weeks okay but that'll do it for judaism v christianity these are the live internet studies brought to you week after week by myself, Ariel Ben Lyman Hanavi. I'm a torture congregation, Kehillat Tunavada Harvest in uh, Thornton, Colorado. Find us online at graftedna.com and join us in, in person for our live Sabbath services. But if you're not able to join us, at least as I mentioned, join us online and um, you can see the link to the video right there on my screen as well. These uh, live internet studies are a part of my own um, Torah teaching ministry, which parks itself on the web at tetzetorah.com. That's T-E-T-Z-E-T-O-R-A-H.com. I'd love to have you join me at my own home uh, personal website there and uh, browse around and take a look through all the uh, commentaries that you see on my screen right now as well. I also have a YouTube channel that I'd be delighted if you uh, popped in and um, took a look around there as well. YouTube.com forward slash C forward slash Tate Torah Ministries. If you do hit my website, uh, my YouTube channel there, be sure to uh, take notice that I update the uh, site essentially daily, uploading videos daily. Make sure then to subscribe, hit the bell for notifications, leave thumbs up for all the videos that you like. Um, leave me some comments and questions about things you have um, uh, your own thoughts on. And be sure to share the content with your other friends and family members in your social media circles, okay? Just some brief important uh, details. If you'd like to join us for our live studies, be sure to get access to Skype somehow. If you're on my website right now, um, uh, during the live study and you click on that blue Skype link, it'll actually open up Skype in your browser and you can just join us right there. And we hope you can join us live because we engage in a live Q&A after the study is over, opening up the microphones and it's exclusively to the um, uh, live studies um, uh, that we uh, enjoy engage in that live study uh, Q&A. But if not, um, take one last moment to scroll to the very bottom of my website where you can see some Hebrew writing and the black section down there. And uh, preferably consider partnering with me to take the Torah around the world uh, in this particular format. You can click on the little yellow donate button and um, bless me that way with your uh, financial gifts and contributions. And I'm so uh, blessed to be able to be in a place where I can receive uh, your generous gifts. Uh, thank you to all of those who have given in the past and are continuing to give. I'm so uh, thrilled to be on the receiving end of, of your generosity. And as I always say, be blessed as you seek to be a blessing to others. Let's turn to exploring the Shema discussions on the issues of Trinity. My name is Ariel Ben Lyman Hanavi. We took a break last week for the fall festivals, but we're ready to turn now and pick up our study again where we left off two weeks ago. Um, just a reminder before I even get started, uh, those of you who are watching this video who may not make it to the fifth part, or if you're watching the longer version of this video, uh, I just reminded you before the break. Um, we're not meeting next week because we're still right in the middle of the fall festival. So just set your calendar 
Um, go attend your festivals, uh, your congregational gatherings and things like that. We're not meeting next week, next Saturday. Uh, but we are meeting the week afterwards. So um, uh, just be reminded. All right. Uh, we're right in the middle of this quote from my paper two, where we're looking at um, is this idea of Trinity, is it logically incoherent? This is a reminder. We're kind of re revisiting this. Um, we, we've looked at this probably a year ago, but um, we're, we're just about ready to turn to this section on um, uh, the Holy, who or what is the Holy Spirit. And we're revisiting passages about the Holy Spirit. But what we're doing first is we're just getting, we're priming ourselves by reminding ourselves about this idea of Trinity. Is it logically coherent? Is the idea of Trinity um, foreign to the text? I, I interact with um, non-Trinitarians all the time through my uh, emails and through my YouTube comments. And they remind me over and over again that there is no Trinity in the Bible. And what they're doing is I, I understand they're taking what we might call the default monotheistic position. But what I do, what I believe is taking place is they're confusing monotheism with Unitarianism. And so often non-Trinitarians will say, well, Unitarianism is the biblical default view, right? Because there's one God, and that's what Israel believed, and that's what Jesus believed. And um, therefore, um, Trinitarianism is this kind of this later invention by the Catholic Church. But what I believe they're doing is they're not giving the total weight of Scripture the um, its, its full... Uh, treatment. They're not. They're not fairly allowing the, the the totality of the Bible to have its say. They're kind of get, being short-sighted by uh, kind of camping out on favorite parts of the Bible, maybe the bulk of the Old Testament and certain parts of the New Testament where um, Jesus, in his humanity, is explaining the difference between God, his Father, and he himself. Right, the whole economic uh, Trinity aspect of Jesus is subservient to the Father as the Son. So they get confused over this, the idea of Unitarianism versus monotheism. I have to remind uh, those of you who are listening to this podcast, watching this video, over and over again, I have to remind you, we Trinitarians are monotheists as well, right? We affirm monotheism. There is one God. There's only one God. And we affirm that. So by teaching Trinity, we're not teaching that there's more than one God. All right, so let's go back and let's pick up again where I left off two weeks ago. Um, we're in, in the middle of a quote from Tim Haig again, right? There's Tim Haig going all over again. And we're talking about the idea that in the biblical way of interacting with information, sometimes you encounter what's known as a paradox, where you have a bit of information on one side of a table, you have another bit of information on another side of the table, and they seemingly contradict with one another. It creates tension in your mind, right? You're thinking, how can... Uh, concept A be true and concept B be true at the same time because they seem to contradict or they seem to be pulling in opposite directions. We introduced this little graphic of someone pulling on a uh, like a tug of war, a rope, right? I'll put that on the screen again. And so this is kind of Hebraic thought versus Greek thought or um, uh, Western and Greek thinking and worldview and the way of approaching the text and paradoxes and things like that versus the Hebraic worldview, which allows for tension and paradox to exist and nevertheless embraces both. So uh, we could put it this way. In the Hebraic way of allowing the Scripture to speak for itself, we can have um, a both-and scenario, where both concept A and concept B are compatible and acceptable, even though they are, uh, even though on the surface they seem like um, they're uh, pulling away from one another. Case in point, um, Jesus is 
uh, truly God and truly man. Those concepts seem to be opposite one another. How can you be truly God and truly man? Aren't they opposing ideas? In the Hebraic worldview of accepting paradox, we could say that, yes, he is God and man, so it's both and. But in the Greek way of thinking or the Western thinking way of thinking or the progressive way of thinking, then it's either or. So it's not both and, it's either or. So we would say that uh, Jesus is either God or he's man, but he can't be both. And so that's our discussion. So if we look at the top of the screen, Tim Hague says, the language of the Bible will be properly understood only when we interpret it within the Hebrew worldview in which it was written. So he's just reminding us that um, if we're going to approach the Bible from our own modern uh, um, kind of um, skeptical or liberal position, where we think, no, there's no way there could have been Trinity. There's no way that the um, first century um, uh, believers could have um, accepted the idea that Jesus was teaching that he was God. Um, because that's what we think, right? We as moderns think that's absurd, that's illogical, it couldn't be possible. But we don't, un- we don't give the um, Bible credit by allowing the Bible to speak for itself in the language and the worldview that it was written in, and that it was entirely compatible for um, Hebrews to worship one God and realize that this God is invisible and transcendent, right? He's far away from us. But at the same time, Yeshua makes this transcendent God eminent. He brings God close to us. So that's the tension created by, and I'll put this graphic on the screen as well, transcendence versus eminence. Um, God is at the same time far away, unapproachable, and at the same time close to us, up and personal, right? It's both and. And that's what Yeshua is bringing to the picture. So that's why we have to allow for the Hebrew worldview to speak. Uh, So, Tim continues. This will never satisfy the linear logic of the Greek mind. And that's why he's comparing the kind of the Hebrew mind versus Greek mind. He's not comparing Hebrew language to Greek language. Don't get confused. He's trying to simply say that by the time Greek thought had entered into the discussion in ancient Israel, we had a lot of philosophical, logical um, uh, discussion taking place about how do we understand God, right? Who is this first cause? Who is the unmoved mover? Uh, Who is the logos? Who is the arche? Who is the architect of everything, right? And so in in the Greek academies, there was a lot of, you know, um discussion that takes place you know uh go back and read the greek fathers the ancient greek um uh, philosophers and you'll see that this heavily influenced a lot of uh people's thought processes but it didn't have to permeate the way the bible was put together so that by the time when we get to the new testament which is where the clearest expression of trinity finally takes place we have jewish writers and jewish thinkers like john who can pin the words of John 1, 1, where in the beginning was the word, the word was with God, and the word was God. And then he goes on to say that this word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have beheld his glory as the glory of an only begotten uh, God sent from the Father. Um, right? The, I'm smashing together John chapter 1, verse 1, verse 14, and verse 18. I did a little bit of mashup there. And we can walk away with the idea that John doesn't really have to borrow from the Greek, the Greco philosophical, the Greek philosophical logos model, so much as he's borrowing simply from good standard Hebraic understanding of 
the Logos is actually the Memra, is actually the agent of the Lord who is so um, eminent, so close and personal to us, but yet he's still God, that we have to understand that um, it's God walking with us, and yet God is invisible, right? God can't be seen. And so the one that reveals God is this Word of God. He is very God, and yet he's with God at the same time. So there's that both and aspect. And so Tim Hag reminds us that this is not going to satisfy the linear logic of the Greek mind. I'm I'm instantly reminded of reading through and listening to Dr. Dale Tuggy's analytic philosoph- philosophical theological podcast, which is a great podcast. I think I'll, I'll just I can endorse it. It's called Trinity's Podcast, I believe. I'll flash a little logo on the screen for plug for um uh, uh Dr. Dale Tuggy. <clears throat> He's a Unitarian Christian. Uh, he's not a Trinitarian, but he's a Christian. He is a theologian, but he's a philosopher. He's an analytic theologian, analytic philosopher. And um, I'll put his picture on the screen for you. And he doesn't agree with Trinity because he thinks it's logically incompatible. One plus one plus one equals three, not one. And he doesn't see how that God can be numerically one and yet three at the same time. He has a difficulty accepting the fact that Jesus is very God because that's one too many gods there. And so he, I think he fits the idea of the linear logic that he has kind of inherited or a chant or uh, um, endorses, whether he says he endorses or not, but it seems apparent to me by his kind of Aryan way of, of thinking about Jesus that he's a creature, um, which is similar to Jehovah's Witnesses' perspective on Trinity, is that it's illogical to say that Jesus is God because there's one too many gods. But Tim Hague's reminding us that... Um, that's not the way he 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 break mind uh, inter- approaches this text. Tim says, nor will it work to use the categories of linear logic to describe the God of Israel. Right? We can't always put God in our laboratory and begin to dissect him and uh, uh, expect that we're going to come out with some sort of meaningful um, equation on the other end. God breaks our equations because he's he's. He transcends. There's a transcendent aspect again. God is outside of, of he's, he's entirely outside of space and time, and yet he, he allows himself to interact with space and time. So there's an aspect of God that is that's always going to be just beyond our grasp. We, we don't even have the words to, to comprehend God, right? He's incomprehensible. Um, his name is ineffable, right? We, we can't even explain it. The, the what what how how God is um put together and he, how how he can be understood um it's mysterious to us um, Paul and Paul used those words not me those aren't my words those are Paul's words about the the mystery yeah the word Trinity doesn't show up in the Bible I hear people reminding me over and over again guess what neither does the word monotheism neither does the word Unitarianism neither does the word unity in in um in a direct relationship to God. So we don't have to play silly word games where, where, well, the word Trinity doesn't show up in the Bible. Yeah, the word Bible doesn't even show up in the word Bible. Okay, so, so just don't put those thoughts in my in your comment in my YouTube comments, right? Don't remind me of that. Um, that's a silly argument, right? But the concept of Trinity is represented by the biblical text, and so we can only see that if we allow the Spirit of God to open our eyes and if we allow the Bible to speak for itself from the worldview in which it uh, is handed down to us. Tim reminds us, we must be satisfied with knowing and defining God and his Messiah by understanding and appreciating the work of God and what he has and will accomplish through it. 
And um, I just remind people over and over again that if you're looking for Trinity, if you're looking for a verse, I get this all the time as well. Ariel, show me a verse where it says that God is one yet three. Ariel, show me a verse where, where, where Jesus says, I am God. Show me a verse. Okay. They're always, they, like there's this, this, this demand that the Bible has to fit your preconceived idea, your, 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 um, your modern skeptical idea of the way the Bible should speak. I got newsflash for you. God is under no obligation to meet your expectation for his word. When last time I checked, when he penned his word, when he inspired the writers to write what they wrote, God decided what it should say. The Holy Spirit inspired the writers to write what they wrote. He didn't check in with the skeptics of the day, the the liberal um the great thinkers of the day and say, is this acceptable language to you? Does this fit your philosophical outlook on the world? Is this going to cause a, a, a disturbance? Is this going to upset your apple cart if I say it this way? If so, I'll change it. God didn't check in with you. He doesn't have to say it your way. So stop trying to make the Bible say it your way. Show me a verse that says this. Show me a verse that says that. You can hear I'm kind of a little, little bit heated here. The Bible doesn't have to say it your way. God doesn't have to say, I'm God, I'm one, yet I'm three. Jesus doesn't have to say, I'm God. He can demonstrate God. He can demonstrate who he is by his very actions. He can demonstrate who he is by his very power. Jesus can demonstrate his equality with God, his Father, by the miracles, by the healings, by his forgiveness of people that otherwise only God could do, by um, doing things and uh, walking in ways that, um, and even allowing titles and worship and, and things to be given to him that, that are exclusively uh, reserved for God. So this is the way we interpret the Bible. This is the Hebraic worldview, but it's, it's the worldview that God built into the text. So um, Tim describes it this way. Let's keep reading Tim. He says, in the end, the Hebraic worldview has learned to be at home with mystery. And I might also add, learn to be at home with paradox or tension, right? The, um, the uh, comparative perspective that Tim is going to describe, he says, while the goal of solving quadratic equations is to discover the value of the unknown element, the goal of knowing God is worship, right? The Hebrew word for worship is avoda or avodah. So he's comparing kind of the the modern liberal philosophical Greek uh, Greek worldview, which is carried over into modern liberal um, analytical ways of thinking as well. He's comparing that to the worldview and the value of that's kind of built into the Hebrew um, cultural aspect of the text. And so I'm not saying that the Jews have everything right. Don't don't fill in that. Don't 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 assume that. Don't don't insinuate that. That's not what I'm implying, that everything that the Jews approach to the text is right. To be sure, modern Judaism has gone far astray as well. There's a lot of philosophical mumbo-jumbo in, in modern um, rabbinic Judaism today as well that's just way, way, way out there, and I wouldn't agree with it anyway either. What we're trying to say is we need to get back to the cultural, historical, biblical worldview, right? which means we have to kind of turn the clock back and um, look at Judaism before it was corrupted by the rabbis. Um, how did Moshe approach the text? How did the apostolic writers approach the text? What did Paul think of the Tanakh? 
And so what we're trying to say is that Paul had no problem describing God as the creator, and yet in other texts describing Jesus as the creator, the agency of creation as well. John apparently didn't have any problem saying that the word was both God and with God at the same time. That creates tension. And so what we're discussing here in this section of our Exploring the Shema discussions on the issues of Trinity is this notion of the idea that as modern readers and students of the text today in our in our modern age, we're going to have to simply let the text speak the way it speaks and provide the um, uh, um, the thought processes in order for us to understand where um, mystery uh, has its place. Um, oftentimes, the writer of the text would uh, speak of the mystery and majesty of God and yet not explain it. Paul's a good case in point. And I think in the middle of Corinthians, I'll, I'll show you this later, but right in the middle of um, Corinthians, he's having this discussion with his readers about um, some mundane issue of eating food off to idols. And then right in the middle of talking about food after idols, which is kind of a practical um, issue that they were dealing with in their day, we don't have that issue today so much, but just follow along with my example. Right in the middle of this discussion, I'll, I'll bring up the reference later, I'm not going to do it right now, but right in the middle of this discussion, Paul just turns in the middle and says, you know, we know that there's one God. You know, for other people, there's lots of gods and idols, and, and we know that they're not truly gods. I'm paraphrasing. We know that they're not truly gods, but they're so-called gods, and people think they're gods, but they're really demonic entities. Uh, but for us, there's one God, and, and there's also one Lord, uh, our Messiah. And right in the middle, he kind of throws in this idea that, in according to the Shema, there's one God and one Lord, but he applies the word God to God the Father, and he, but he applies the word Lord to the Lord Yeshua. So you see what he's doing is he's he's transforming the kind of the natural understanding of the Shema that there's one God and he's expanding this to include the fact that Yeshua is part of the mystery of the Godhead. Understand what I'm saying? The Shema says, Hero Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. It uses the word Lord and God in Deuteronomy 6.4 and 6.5. Hero Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. But Paul says, for us, there's one God and one Lord. And for Paul, he takes the word God, which is the Greek word theos, and he applies it to God the Father, but he takes the word Lord, which is the Greek word kudios, and applies it to Yeshua. He takes the Deuteronomy Shema, and he opens our eyes to understand that it's Trinitarian as well, right? That what God was actually giving way back in Deuteronomy was in its seminal form, foundational form, monotheistic Trinitarian. Paul can see that because his eyes have been opened by the Spirit. But the point I'm trying to bring up is that he does this right in the middle of this practical, everyday, mundane conversation about eating food offered to idols. Why can Paul do that without stopping to explain the philosophical backgrounds and all the intricacies of Trinity and explain it? Why does he have to do He doesn't have to do that. Because in his world... Um, and in his perspective, it was just under, it was natural to understand that God has revealed himself in the person of his son, Messiah. The word made flesh is now walking among us. And we don't have to explain that to, our, to everyone, um, at least to our own um, believers, or uh, the believing communities, because it's now something we've come to accept. Remember, the writings of the New Testament were written after the fact. The Trinity was revealed kind of in the, in the intertestamental period 
in which the history actually played itself out. When Jesus came, walked and talked, and then left, and then the Bible was written, the New Testament part was written after that took place. So by the time the New Testament was written, the Trinitarian perspective was already a reality to the believers. They weren't discovering it again. We read the writings as if it's, as if it's um, kind of playing out in real time, but in, in, in fact, it's actually already history. Let's pick up Tim. He says, the goal of solving quadratic equations is to discover the value of the unknown element. The goal of knowing God, by contrast, is to worship him. So we have this idea of God is a mystery. God is a paradox, right? We, can, we can't fully understand God. Is, he, is God human? Is he God? The answer is yes. Um, you know, is Yeshua human? Is he God? The answer is yes. And yet the goal is not to approach Trinity with skepticism. That's my challenge to you modern listeners and viewers of my YouTube channel and my iTunes podcast who are my, leaving comments on my videos and saying, Trinity is absurd. It's illogical. It can't, doesn't make any sense, right? It upsets my natural uh, analy analytical mind, my logical um, uh, 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 modern uh, liberal mind. It, 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 it doesn't agree with that. And I remind you, the purpose of God revealing himself in mystery is for the purpose of majesty. It's for the purpose of worship, right? So let the text... Uh, draw you into that uh, place of worship. You don't always have to understand everything. I mean, honestly, honestly, I got a confession to make for you. I don't fully understand Trinity either. I really don't. I don't understand how God can be completely transcendent and yet eminent at the same time. How can that be? How can it be possible? How can He be outside of space and time and yet interact with space and time? But I nevertheless affirm it. I embrace it, even though it's mysterious. Tim continues. In the linear logic of mathematics, one fails if one does not discover the value of the unknown element in the equation. He's just describing what typically takes place in a logical discussion. However, by contrast, he says, in the revelation of God to man in the scriptures and in the Messiah, one will actually fail if one cannot be satisfied with the unknown. Did you catch that challenge in that contrast? Notice, we don't always have to be able to figure it out. We become, too many people get derailed in their theology of trying to understand God because, and I see this over and over, at least in the comments that people leave on my YouTube videos and the emails that they send me, over and over again, they say, I used to believe in Trinity, but I heard some logic thinker tell me, well, how can Jesus really be God if X, Y, Z? And they fill in the blank with certain either passages or, or logical thought um, discussions or whatever, whatever. And so this Bible student becomes dissatisfied with Trinity uh, because they can't make sense of it, all of the pieces. And they decide then to abandon Trinity and embrace Unitarianism or some other a version of Christianity that's non-Trinitarian, like the you know the Christadelphian, Iglesia Ni Cristo, one is Pentecostalism, and uh, United Church of God, things like that. They embrace all these non-Trinitarian versions because for them it scratches the itch, it satisfies their mind, it eases the pain of Trinity. I'm here to tell you, Trinity is a bit painful to articulate. It's a bit confusing to accept. I know, I know, I, I agree. It's challenging. I say confusing. It's a bit challenging because of the unarticulated uh, uh, equivocations 
because of the um, uh, information limitation, because the text doesn't speak the way we want it to speak, because of the lack of verses that like are in our face about, well, you can pray to the Holy Spirit or something like that, or Jesus saying, you know, read my lips, I am God, or something like that. Because of those um, omissions from the Bible, we become dissatisfied with the Bible. And so that's when we, without knowing it, what we end up doing is we end up cherry picking, selecting passages and places in the Bible that fit our theology because it scratches our itch, it makes us feel warm and fuzzy, and we're satisfied because we've figured something out. We've solved the equation. But there are, I'm, I'm telling you, there are aspects of the Bible that are simply unknown, that are mysterious, that are spoken of, but not elaborated on. We don't have all the details. We have information gaps. But it's true to God, and it's true to his representation, and it's enough that God um, gives us the amounts that he gives us, and leaves out things that he doesn't uh, explain. I'm having this current dialogue with another uh, viewer of one of my YouTube channels explaining to me that um, we shouldn't try and fill in where God leaves things blank. So if God didn't say he's Trinity, if God didn't use the words, if Jesus didn't say I'm God, if 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 the Holy Spirit didn't say, didn't say pray to me, then why should we fill in the blanks with... with um, concepts that aren't there in the Bible. We should be silent. We shouldn't be having uh, Trinity discussions. And I'm here to remind him, yes, part of that is an argument from silence. The Bible doesn't explain all certain things. But at the same time, it conveys the aspect of Trinity to us. God reveals Trinity not necessarily in the ways that we think it should be explained. He does it in other ways. He does it, like I said, with his actions. Uh, Jesus does it by the the miracles and by the uh, the the the, uh, the forgiveness and and uh, the Holy Spirit demonstrates that He's very God by um, demonstrating His personhood and things like that. Let's keep reading. We've got uh, just a few minutes left. I think I can finish this uh, paragraph uh, from Tim Hague, and then we'll call it quits. Tim says, "For though we may, through the work of God's grace, know Him indeed, we can never know Him exhaustively." And just a reminder, even if you think you've got it all figured out, then think again. You don't. There's so much in the Bible for us to know God, but there's so much that's left out according to our understanding, according to our way of composing the Bible. It's not left out by God's perspective. God's Word is complete. Uh, God's Word is thorough. God's Word is perfect in... Um, it's uh, a revelation to us, right? The Holy Spirit didn't um, have a bad hair day and forget to, 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 to write in that verse where it says Jesus is God or I'm the Holy Spirit, please pray to me or something like that. Um, God didn't just um, have a, a, a momentary lapse of reason where he forgot to explain that Jesus, is, his son, is very God as well. That's not what's going on. It's not that the Bible is actually missing pieces. Rather, God reveals himself in a way that, from our perspective, is missing information. But in reality, um, God simply lays the information out in ways that are challenging to us. And so, it is enough for us to know him, but uh, in the end, we, we, we are still um, lacking an understanding in certain areas. We just have to concede that God is right and we're wrong. And one day we will be able to figure it out. But for now, we just have gaps in our understanding. And um, 
we're just going to have to live with that for now. Uh, again, I'm not implicating God. It's not God's fault. But at the same time, uh, it is God's word and his decision. So it's, it's that tension all over again. God designed the word the way it is. God laid out the Bible the way he did. And God chose the words that he wanted uh, to be in there. So that that is God's responsibility. He's responsible for that. He's takes the credit for that. But at the same, t- so he's the designer. But at the same time, um, uh, we have to just live with the fact that there are um, uh, absences of of words and phrases that we wish were there. Stop trying to manhandle the Bible and make it say what you think it should say, and simply accept what it does say. That's my point. All right, don't be selective. Don't cherry pick. Uh, take the Bible. What is? How does? Um, Dr. James White is fond of saying, if we're going to accept Trinity, we have to do it uh, by accepting sola scriptura and tota scriptura. What do these Latin phrases mean? Sola scriptura means the Bible alone, and tota scriptura means the Bible entirely. So in order to see Trinity, this is my challenge to you Unitarians out there or non-Trinitarians, in order to see Trinity, you have to accept all of the Bible and you accept you have to accept it as authoritative. So too often when I'm dialoguing with non-Trinitarian um, people who interact with my videos, often the error that I can perceive in their understanding of the Bible or their misunderstanding of the Bible is that they are, without knowing it, they don't admit it often, but they and they may not even be aware of it themselves, but I can sense it in the way that they write and in their objections to Trinity, is that they're actually either rejecting certain parts of the Bible. Some of the people I interact with actually reject words of Paul or reject certain New Testament passages claiming that they've been tampered with or something like that. Others uh, simply say, well, we believe that's what the Bible was written down, but it was um, it's not authoritative to me. Uh, I don't have to believe it because, you know, for XYZ reason. So uh, you've got to accept all of the Bible and you've got to accept it authoritatively. And that's when Trinity is going to start opening itself up to you. Of course, Holy Spirit's going to have to be the one opening your eyes. Let's let's finish this up tonight. Tim's concludes by saying, nor is our limited knowledge of God able to provide comprehensive exploration explanations of his persons and his works. Even though we've got the Holy Spirit explaining things to us, nevertheless, it serves God's purpose to still give us limited information. I don't understand why, right? I mean, consider this case in point. This gentleman that I'm having this discussion with who tells me that um, if God doesn't say something in the Bible, then we shouldn't we shouldn't highlight it either. We shouldn't try to fill in where God left information out. We should just, if there's a silence in the Bible, if God doesn't say he's Trinity, then we shouldn't try to assume he's Trinity. And I remind him that, that his logic is not accurate, and I give him this one example. If Jesus is truly the Messiah, then shouldn't God have told the Jews that Jesus is the Messiah in the Old Testament? Shouldn't we have Jesus' name or Jesus' description showing up? I mean, God knew the past from the future, knew the future from the past. God knows the future. God knew Jesus was going to hit the scene sooner or later. Shouldn't God have told the Jews way back in the law, of, in the law of Moses, or in the prophets, or in the Book of Psalms, or somewhere that hey, guess what? Sooner or later, Jesus is going to show up. Here's my son. Here he is. You got to accept him. You got to believe in him for your personal salvation. His name's Jesus. Hello, hello. His name's Jesus, and so. But because the Tanakh doesn't, right, the Old Testament doesn't tell us that Jesus' name doesn't give us, like, in clear, unambiguous terms that Jesus is the one you need to put your faith in for salvation. you got to believe in Jesus for salvation. Instead, the Bible gives it to us in this very kind of somewhat cryptic, mystic, 
um, prophetic ways. I mean, he gives us all the signposts and, and all the types and shadows to understand who Jesus is by faith, but there's still a little bit of challenge there, still a little bit of a mystery to it sometimes, right? Otherwise, if it was so black and white, then Jews the world over would have been you know, falling head over heels, uh, falling over themselves, believing in Jesus because it was so black and white, but it isn't. And the point I'm trying to bring up is similar to what Tim says. Um, we have an understanding of Bible, but it's still limited. Um, uh, God explains things to us, but he doesn't explain it the way that we wish to explain it all the time. I mean, honestly, if I were the editor, if, if, if I were editing the Bible, um, I probably would have gotten in trouble because I would have filled in places where I think God was a little bit ambiguous. I would have disambiguated for, on, on, on God's behalf, right? I would have gotten in trouble as a scribe. <laughs> All right, let me finish this. Um, Tim says, uh, when we reach the end of our ability to know God, we are left with the mystery of his inexplicable greatness. Right? This is a, a, a good thing. Um, by faith, Tim says, we hold the treasure of this mystery in the earthen vessels. Right? That's a, a reference to Second um, Corinthians 4, 7 from Paul's words. So in conclusion, to exploring the Shema discussions on the issues of Trinity, in conclusion to this um, segment, um, just to remind you that the Bible is God's word. He chose to write what he wrote. There are parts that don't make sense to us. There are parts that are mysterious to us. There are parts where we, there seems to be information limitation. Where We have what uh, Dr. James Anderson describes as a macru, an M-A-C-R-U-E. It's, it's not... A, con a true contradiction where the Bible says in one verse uh, A and then in another verse it says B and it seems like a paradox to us because it's contradictory, right? Jesus is God, but Jesus is man. That seems to be contradictory. God is one, yet God is three. That seems to be contradictory. Um, God is invisible, yet God is seen. That's That seems to be contradictory. Things like that. We don't have true contradictions in the Bible because I believe with the conviction that the Bible cannot contradict itself. Instead, let me remind you in closing that when we find those places where the text seems to be saying one thing and then saying something else, it's what we have is merely an apparent contradiction resulting from unarticulated equivocation. A fancy phrase, M-A-C-R-U-E, is simply uh, Dr. Anderson's way of reminding us that we have information limitation. The Bible says something one place, it says something else, something else, in another place, and it's simply giving us the other side of um, the perspective that we wouldn't ordinarily see if we were only reading it through one passage. But God can see both sides of the coin at the same time. Whereas for us, um, we have to flip the coin over uh, repeatedly in order to see both sides. We, even if we turn it on its edge, we're not seeing both sides. We're only seeing the edge. But God has the ability to see it both sides at once without using a mirror. That's cheating, right? That's the way we would do it. If you hold up a coin without a mirror, you can only see one side unless you flip it over. But if you hold it up to the mirror, you can see both the side facing you, the head side, and in the mirror, you can see the tail side. Well, that's cheating. But guess what? God doesn't have to cheat. He can see both sides at the same time. So we have to allow God to speak the way he speaks and allow God's word to express itself in all of its fullness and all of its greatness and all of its mystery and all of its majesty. And only then will the Trinity begin to make more sense to us? Omain? Omain. Just a reminder, we're not meeting next week, so set your calendar for two weeks from now. We'll pick this up again in two weeks. But that'll do it for Exploring the Shema, discussions on the issues of Trinity. Let's turn to the liturgy. Exodus chapter 3, three short verses, 
verses 13 through 15. This is one of my favorite passages, and I'm picking verses that I just want to read, not particularly any um, theological tie-in to any part of the study. God and Moses are having this discussion about sending Moses into the in uh, uh, um, before the Pharaoh, sending him uh, into the cor- Pharaoh's courts and before him to negotiate. Really, it's not a negotiation. God's going to have his way, but you understand what I'm saying here. Moses is going to tell Pharaoh, God says, let my people go. And um, before all that happens, though, Moses has to go to the people and explain God's plans and how that God's going to rescue them from Egypt and bring them out of Egypt and bring them into the uh, promised land or bring them uh, to a place where God can uh, uh, bless them and things like that, right? You guys know the story. You've read it or you've watched the movies or the dramas or the, uh, the, uh, the uh, animations. Or I just watched recently Exodus of gods of kings and of gods and kings. I think with with um, Christian Bale uh, playing the part of Moses. Wow, that was a really good uh, Hollywood rendition of the story. Nevertheless, this is the this is kind of what's going on. So Moses is gonna go before Pharaoh and he's gotta go before the people. But before he does that, he has these, a few questions to God, like, um, "Who should I tell him is sending me?" Right? Who is the God that's going before me? And this is the account where God actually tells Moses his name. But it's really uh, particular, peculiar how it comes about. So we'll look at this um, uh, this week and next week. I'm gonna read only the English this week, and next week we'll read only the Hebrew. So. Exodus 3.13, starting right there where you see on my screen. Um, Then Moses said to God, If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, Say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. And then verse uh, 15, God also said to Moses, Scroll up there. God also said to Moses, Say this to the people of Israel, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. We're going to look at the um, Hebrew of that next week. It's very peculiar what God actually says to Moses about I am who I am, and then um, say to the people, you know, the Lord God, you know, what is it about the name of God that can be gleaned from this particular passage? Uh, does it bear relevance for us today? Um, does this mean that we should be using God's name exclusively? Uh, we'll talk a little bit about, about that next week, but that'll do it for the liturgy from the Old Testament or the Torah section. Let's turn to Romans 14 and begin to read this through again. We've read this in the past, and this is a, a text we're going to turn to over and over again since we're studying it in our Roman study. We're just going to read the first three verses again tonight. Um, as we start to read down through this passage, I'll read the English, I'll read the Greek next week. Paul says in Romans 14.1, As for the one who's weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. We're going to make this discussion over and over again. Who are the weak in faith, and why does it bear relevance for Paul, and why should it bear relevance for us in our 21st century discussions? In verse 2, Paul says, One person believes he may eat anything while the weak person eats only vegetables. And in verse 3, he says, Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains, and let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats, for God has welcomed him. Let's turn now to the um, uh, short little video for tonight. And after we watch the video, then we'll just simply dismiss in prayer. Okay, you guys ready? Here we go.
Short Questions, Short Answers by Tor Teacher Ariel and eBible. Copyright is Tate's A Tor Ministries 2015. All rights reserved. Here's our question on the table for tonight. Why did God change the laws that man must obey from the Old to New Testament? Yep, it's the age-old discussion. Well, in my opinion, God did not change any of his laws. Why? Because God does not change. Read Malachi 3.6. Nor did his son Yeshua, Jesus, change any of the laws. And we then understand that Yeshua also does not change, for he is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Read Hebrews. So, some are going to object right away. Didn't the writer of Hebrews speak about a change in the law, right? Yeshua did, in fact, walk into a priestly office that was radically different from the established law spelled out in the Torah. This we know because we're about to read a passage from the book of Hebrews. Here it is, quote, For when there is a change in the priesthood, there is necessarily a change in the law as well. There it is. For the one of whom these things are spoken belong to another tribe from which no one has ever served at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah, and in connection with that tribe, Moses said nothing about priests. It's Hebrews 7, 12 through 14. So let's talk about it. This difference is termed, quote, change of law, end quote. And the Greek is namu metathesis. And in Hebrews, we read about that. But it shouldn't be understood as having changed the Torah law, particularly the earthly law governing priests. Let me explain myself. The verse primarily teaches that Yeshua originates from a different line of priests. That is, one taking its governance from a heavenly authority, a line that is, quote, changed, in quote, from the earthly line. We could say it's different. For as we're going to read below here in a moment, earthly Levitical priests will again be serving in their office in the thousand-year reign of Christ here on earth. We're actually going to read some passages, I believe, out of the book of Isaiah that explain that to us. So, this means that both earthly lines and heavenly lines work in tandem to bring about the will of God. What does that mean? It means they don't compete with one another. On the contrary, they complement one another. Understand my main point here. So, what are our conclusions to our brief study? If the writer to the book of Hebrews were teaching that the Torah has been abolished and is no longer applicable, then he would not be teaching that a change of the Torah must take place. Understand my logic here. One would never consider that a law which has been decommissioned ever needs to be changed. Are you following the logic? Once a law ceases to be law, it no longer is enforceable and is therefore no longer considered viable or necessary to be administrated. So, the fact that our author speaks of a change taking place must mean that he considers the Torah to be active and viable. Indeed, the viability of the Torah is why he feels the necessity to speak to the issue of priestly lineage in the first place. Moreover, some would say, well, parts of it were changed, parts of it were retained, right? The threefold breakdown. The so-called threefold division of the law idea, in my opinion, must be abandoned if we were to accept the whole Bible as one harmonious unit. The Tanakh called Old Testament by some, it doesn't differentiate between so-called moral, ceremonial, civil commandments, right? Let's uh, take an instance here, case in point. Many call the Sabbath a ceremonial command, yet repeated remorseless violation of Sabbath drew the death penalty. Read Exodus 31, 14, and 15. So, 
Here's my challenge. If it's merely a ceremonial commandment and not a moral one, then why did God attach the death penalty to its violation? Ever stop and think about that for a moment? If it's just ceremony, why is it a capital offense if we remorselessly, repeatedly violate the Sabbath command? So, um, besides, we know from reading our Bibles that the Sabbath, along with sacrifices, we're going to read in a moment, they're going to be enforced during the millennium. See what I mean? Our case in point is, if we read Isaiah 66, 21 and 23, 21 through 23, it has all the um, indications that Sabbath is going to return with sacrifices. Look at this. And some of them also I will take for priests and um, to minister to me. For as the new heavens and the new earth that I make shall remain before me, says the Lord, so shall your offspring and your name remain. This is God speaking to Israel, of course. Israel's not going away anytime soon. But what does God continue to say? He says, from new moon to new moon, and from Sabbath to Sabbath, all flesh, this Jew and Gentile, shall come to worship before me, declares the Lord. Check out my podcasts, which are available on iTunes. You can search for me in the store under the search term Ariel Hanavi. But if you prefer to watch your theology, check out my YouTube channel, subscribe to my YouTube channel, and click the bell for notifications. New content is added weekly or even daily. That'll do it for the videos. Let's dismiss in prayer. Father. Abba, we bless your name. We thank you for the greatness of your word, the um, wonderful um, gift of your Holy Spirit who has revealed the pages of your word to us in the fullness of Messiah. He reminds us of the words of the Master. He, He draws us into fellowship with one another and with you. And he brings us to a place where we are challenged by the text. We don't fully understand all the words we read. We we don't understand how Jesus came to bring reform and to tell us that the old man must die and that the new man must be reborn. We don't fully understand that. We don't understand how Jesus can be fully God, truly God and truly man at the same time. He brings um, God to us. He bridges that gap between transcendence and eminence. Lord, we don't fully understand that, but we affirm it. We embrace it and we um, believe it by faith. Continue to grow us, stretch our understanding continue to um, expand our our, uh, capacity to appreciate the text and to articulate it. Um, Meet us where we're at, Lord. We don't have all the answers, and so we rely on you. Uh, Continue to draw us close to yourself during these fall festivals that we're currently in. Thank you for um, uh, Yom Troah, the Feast of Trumpets, Day of the Awakening Trumpet Blast, Rosh Hashanah on our calendar. Bless you, Lord, for the Yom Kippur um, sacrifice and for Yeshua uh, being our great high priest who has uh, offered himself up on the heavenly altar as that Yom Kippur sacrifice. Bless you, Lord, for the Feast of Trumpets, which is right around the corner that we're going to be engaged in during the break. Um, the Feast of uh, in gathering of, of Sukkot, I mean, uh, tabernacles. Bless you, Lord, for all of these truths. Um, be with us, uh, strengthen us, keep us safe, and continue to heal us and provide for us. And we'll be careful to give the praise and the glory of Hashem Yeshua. Amen. Thank you.